So Hebrews chapter 6, and we'll start our reading at verse number 9. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. There's obviously contrast there with what's gone before, so we'll fill that in in due course. But, beloved, we are persuaded better things of you, and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labour of love, which you have showed towards his name, and that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the ears of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation, who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whether the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And that's our reading. So when we get to this uh, portion, this section in Hebrews, um, we've come a fair distance in the flow of thought, in the train of the argument, if you like, or encouragement that the writer's been given uh, in his letter. And so we noticed last time that he has supplied a lot of information, some of it complex, and he supplied it within a particular context. He's been informing, and you, those of you who have been here regularly will be weary of me saying this, but he's been informing those with particularly a Jewish background of all the blessings in Christ that they have received and which are far superior to everything that they left behind in Judaism. And although Judaism, although not as practiced but as given, although Judaism was of God, and although it was the case that what they practiced had its roots in divine revelation, that has been superseded. And we are now in this new context, and they've left behind the things which particularly appeal to the senses, to things that you could see and hear, touch and feel and so forth. They've left that behind. So they've left behind what they could see in all the splendor of the temple. They've left behind having the security blanket of men, priests and a high priest, who would mediate between them and God, so they went direct face to face with God. And they had the comfort of knowing that there's a sacrificial system in place which actually involved things they could touch and give and handle. They've left all that behind. And they've come out to what seems the relative insecurity of no building, of no priesthood, of nothing tangible as such prescribed by God to offer in the way that the Old Testament prescribed. And there is an insecurity evidently amongst them, and it's a kind of infectious insecurity, so that there were those who weren't truly saved, there were those that were saved, as is common when the word of God spreads through an area and a group of people, and there was a tendency amongst them now to drift back 
to that which was safe and known and familiar and seemingly secure. This letter is written to that group of people. Now, it's a mixed company. There are those not saved and there are those saved. And he's issued warnings in the midst of all this information. Warnings for them to check their spiritual condition, to make sure they're among the group that are saved and truly saved. To make sure that they're not going through the motions and that what they have is genuine. And really, this section that we're reading is one such warning section. And he's now going to go past that when we finish it, and he's going to go into the section dealing with the Melchizedek priesthood of the Lord Jesus. But having issued the warning in chapter 5, at the end of it, into chapter 6, the writer now, he expresses his confidence that the majority of the people who are receiving this letter are in fact true believers and are manifesting the evidence of it. And he wants to encourage them. He wants to encourage them to go on to maturity, to, uh, to display to a greater extent the fruit of their salvation and the evidence of the reality of it. So although there are some evidently amongst them who deserve this sobering caution and warning that he's given to them, he does not see them all within that context. One writer put it this way, it's clear that he sincerely believes that the larger part of his readers are truly saved and only need exhortation to diligence and patience. Their works of love and support to other believers that will come to strongly testify to their genuine faith. So here is the contrast I pointed out in the reading when you get to verse number 9. So here is this contrast where he uses the word beloved, which is not a familiar word that he uses in the epistle, but beloved, he says, we are persuaded better things of you. So now he's focusing in to the people that he's referring to as beloved, and he refers to them as you. So he's now directing his comments to that group. And he says, we are persuaded better things of you. Well, better than, better than the things he's been talking about in the previous section. By way of contrast, and he's been speaking about those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. That's verse 4 and 5 in chapter 6. If they shall fall away, and we looked at that Last time, he says, in, by way of contrast, he says, I want to speak to the most of you that are actually manifesting the reality of your salvation. He says, we're persuaded better things of you. Now that word persuaded, it's perfect tense, which means I have come to a settled conviction and still hold that conviction. So he had arrived at that conviction in the past and that conviction rem remained right up until the present. He says, I was persuaded and I continue to be persuaded. He has a settled confidence in the majority of his readers. And that confidence is firstly negative and then positive. So negatively, he says, better things. So that's by way of contrast to what's gone before. So he says, better than falling away, better than compared to grass which is burned, better than crucifying again the Son of God. All these things. He says, I'm absolutely convinced. I have a settled conviction that these things are not true of you. Well, that's encouraging. But then he comes to a positive. That's a negative. And then he comes to a positive, And he says in verse number nine, and there's a connecting word. So firstly, 
better things of you, negative in contrast to what's past, and positively, things that accompany salvation. So he said, all of that negative stuff, I haven't seen it in you, and I don't believe it exists in you. But in contrast to that, he says, actually, he says, the things that accompany salvation are present in you. Which leads him to this settled conviction. So what are the things that accompany salvation? Well, he doesn't actually go into them in great detail, although he will mention a few in the verses that follow. But he's referring to the positive manifestations of divine life. The things that inevitably accompany salvation because salvation produces them. The things that are the external evidence to a world that you're different and you belong to Christ. The things that are evident to other believers that you have a connection with them and that you have that intimate connection as brothers and sisters in Christ. The things that accompany salvation. Salvation doesn't come by itself in that sense. Things accompany it. If there is nothing accompanying it, it's because, according to John, it's not there in the first place. So he says, I am convinced, negatively, positively. And the significance of these things actually are rooted in the reality that they've come to Christ, they have a union with Christ, they've received Christ, Christ is their great high priest, Christ is their once for all sacrifice, Christ is the altar, Christ is the sacrifice, Christ is the priest before it, all of the things that you'll see in this book of Hebrews, things that accompany salvation, rooted in the reality of these things. MacArthur says this, they do not focus on the elementary truths of resurrection and judgment, which, by the way, we saw are rooted in the Old Testament. They've moved on from these things into the New Testament, but on the believer's blessed hope. Not just in being enlightened, but in being made new. Not just in tasting salvation, but feasting on it. Not just partaking of the Holy Spirit, but being indwelt by the Spirit of God. Not just getting a taste of God's good word, but of drinking and eating it. Not just seeing God's miracles, but being one of God's miracles. These are the things that accompany salvation. And so he doesn't want genuine believers to doubt their salvation. He wants to reassure them in the reality of it. And when we see these evidences of salvation and the things that accompany salvation, then it should be encouraging to all of us, not just as we observe them in other people, but as we can see them in ourselves. Aspirations that you have that other folk don't have are not Christians. Uh, a conscience about sin that you may have that other people don't have that are not Christians. A sensitivity to other people, a desire to serve, a desire to love, an agape love, and all these sorts of things. Things that accompany salvation. Now he wants them to press on in the manifestation of these things. So notice verse number 10. He says, for God. So it may well be that these people, well, in a sense, they, they, they wondered um, who's real and who's not, and who can judge and whose judgment is important. Well, he directs us to God, who is the ultimate judge of these things. He says, for God is not unrighteous to forget. So although the things that accompany salvation come and go in our life, don't be afraid of this. God remembers and God sees them and God knows them. And so the ESV says this, for God is not unjust 
so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. So God never overlooks. God never forgets the true evidence of salvation and the things that accompany salvation. That's an encouragement to us. You know, most of the things that we've done positively in our life that we would characterise as good works, we remember because we're that chuffed about them and they're so few. And so we mark them off. You know, if you've ever forgiven someone biblically, it's like you've climbed Mount Everest when actually you should be in the foothills because that really is just the ABCs of Christianity according to Scripture, according to the Lord actually. And we think we've done some great thing. And there's lots of things like that. And they're like red letter days in our experience because we've accomplished something for Christ and we remember them. But actually, God remembers them and that's more important, that's vital because God is righteous and it says here in verse number 10, two things. He will not forget, number one, your work. Number one, your work. The things that you do, he will not forget them. Others may forget them, he will not. For example, here's an example of God's non-forgetfulness about work. In 2 Timothy 1, uh, Onesiphorus, I think you could pronounce it. we we'll get get three different ways to pronounce his name. The Lord give mercy unto the house of, or Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he was in Rome, he sought me out very, very diligently and found me. The Lord, here it is, the Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And how many things he ministered unto me, Ephesus, thou knowest very well. So Paul says this, I remember the work that he did for me when I was in prison. But actually... I have a settled confidence that God will not forget that work and in that day of reward, he will receive it from the Lord. And so he commits the reward to the Lord rather than undertakes it himself. The Lord grant unto him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day because God is not unrighteous to forget your work. Secondly, he is also not unrighteous to forget our love so you have work and you have love it's manifested the love particularly i think grammatically to all the saints and so he's speaking about this peculiarly christian attribute of love this agape love this idea of loving as an act of will this idea of loving without cause this idea of loving which acts and is a love of servitude he says, this manifestation of divine love, which is seen in the love that you have to all saints, God doesn't forget it. We love others because we love God. And if we don't love others, there's a question mark as to whether we love God. That's all tied up in this. The things that accompany salvation, serving and loving, work and love to all the saints. And these things should give us confidence about the assurance of our salvation. If you have a desire to do these things, if you find within your heart a spark of any of that, it is something that is not natural. It is something that is accompanying salvation. And then he says this in verse 10. He said, work and labour of love, but notice this, they are demonstrated which ye have showed. Now that points to something visible. 
tangible, demonstrable. He's speaking about evidence. And he's speaking about the things that can be pointed to, spoken about, seen, witnessed. And these are all witnesses to the reality of salvation. They're tangible. They're seen. He refers again to this later on in chapter 10, verse 32 to verse 34, when he speaks of them in the context of persecution. So they endure public reproach, they show sympathy to prisoners, they joyfully accept the spoiling of their goods, the destruction of their property, and the writer points to that and says, you know, there is the true sign of Christianity, there's the true sign of salvation, they are enduring those things and it's an evidence of the reality of their faith now he says this as well in verse number 10, God is not unrighteous to forget these two things which are demonstrable, which are evidential, they can be seen and which are directed in principle and as a matter of priority toward his name. So he brings this to another level. So when you are working, it isn't the immediate recipient of that labour that is the cause of it. You're rendering it primarily not to that individual or not to further that cause. You're rendering it to the name of God. Now, there is a recipient, there is someone who's a beneficiary of that, but they are not the principal cause of it. This is a very important point about Christian service, because if we get this wrong, and if we invert that so that we feel that the individual is the primary cause, and then God is the beneficiary, then that will break down. It will break down. Cause is important when it comes to work and the expression of love. Because if the primary cause of your labour and love is a flawed, sinful saint, you're going to fall out of them and get aggravated by them and get annoyed and, and your work and love is going to diminish. But if actually the primary cause of your work and your labour is God, his name, which speaks to his character and it speaks to his many attributes, and if you're doing it to honour and glorify his name and because of who he is, then he will never fail, he will never diminish, he will never act out of keeping with his character. Therefore, the work will flow because it's aimed. He's the primary cause and there are others who are the beneficiaries of it. We cannot invert that. If we invert it, it leads to disaster. It leads to love not being shown and it leads to work not being done. So the question, it's like a self-test, who are you doing this for and why are you doing it? Who are you doing it for and why are you doing it? Are you doing it for her, him, this? Or are you doing it for God? <coughs> Do you show it to his name, to the name of God? And God's name represents all that he is as he has revealed himself in his word, his holy attributes, his ways, his character, and so on. And... A great example of this is Peter after he failed. Do you remember when Peter was recommissioned by the Lord, the Lord asked him questions and they were about his love. But he didn't say, Peter, do you love these disciples? Serve them. And you'll honour me. He didn't say, Peter, do you love these annoying, failed, uh, flawed individuals, Peter? Does your heart go out in sympathy? Do you desire? Do you, are they the primary cause of what I'm asking you to do? No, they're not. 
He asked the question, lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? Lovest thou me? Feed my sheep, feed my lambs. Out of love for Christ you'll serve. He's the primary cause of your service, Peter. And your service will be directed to the beneficiaries of it, but it is actually caused by your love of Christ. And so here, this is in verse number 10. And he says, listen, this is my settled confidence about you. Just summarize verse 9 and 10. Beloved, you're in a relationship of love with the writer because you're brothers and sisters in Christ. He's got this settled and has done for a while, this settled conviction that salvation exists. And the evidence of it is that they are not negatively engaged in the things he's spoken about, but are displaying positively the things that accompany salvation. You can tell they're a believer. Because he says, look, there's the work and there's the love that they're showing to all the saints and they're doing it for his name's sake. With every reason not to do it in the ones, people who are the beneficiaries of it. They're rendering it to the Lord and rendering it to the Lord and the benefit is flowing out to other individuals. Now, he then issues an appeal in verse 11 and verse 12. And he says, this is my aspirational appeal to you, and we desire. So here is his aspiration, his desire for them. So he's encouraged them, now he wants to exhort them. And he says, we desire that every one of you to show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. So he says, I want you to keep at this. Keep doing it, be encouraged. Go on, you haven't arrived. It's not done. You've got the rest of your life to live. You've got the rest of your service to render. You've got the rest of your love to to express. Go on and don't be slothful or sluggish. Verse 12, that ye be not slothful. If you want to know what a sloth is, go to the book of Proverbs and do a word study on the slothful person. It's right through the book of, you're smiling, Andy. It's right through the book of Proverbs. Look at the word sloth. It's actually quite challenging because I'm sure we can all identify with the sloth at some point. So he's saying, listen, go on. There are folks who are going to fall back because they don't actually have salvation. Apostate. So there are those in this particular context who have received so many blessings, so many privileges, and they've stood on the edge on all these blessings and privileges, and they're just about there, and they turn back. They turn back. He says, if you're standing in the same place as them, don't turn back. You've got the real thing. Don't go back with them. Go on. As they go back, you go forward. And he says, listen, if you're not finding the encouragement around you to go on, he says, why not dip into biblical history and you'll find plenty there? That's verse 6 down to verse 20. Oh, sorry, that's verse 13 down to verse 20. So he's going to give every assurance now to them, every motivation rooted in their Old Testament history that they knew so well. And he's going to take them back to these great characters and principally to Abraham. You mentioned Melchizedek, you mentioned Christ as well, but we'll be back at Abraham. And this whole section, by the way, from verse 13 down to verse 20, builds up to a wonderful metaphor which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, which makes you almost want to burst into song. Uh, I won't, thankfully, but... It builds up the use of this, strangely for some of these old terms, biblical metaphor, and it is of the anchor. 
And instead of the anchor going down into the ocean, the anchor goes in the opposite direction. It's a strange metaphor. It doesn't go down, it goes up. And so the anchor, if you like, is thrown up, cast up into heaven itself, the holiest of all, behind the veil, so to speak, as he does. And where the Lord is, Jesus, who's entered as a forerunner for us, become our great high priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. And that will bring his conversation or his letter full circle from verse 10 of chapter 5 and the uh, verse 11 of chapter 5 down to the end of chapter 6 the parenthesis comes to an end so he refers them to Abraham go on you say just like Abraham so in verse 19 Sorry, verse 13. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. So you're way back into Genesis, the narrative, the history, chapter 11, the end of, and into chapter 12, 13, and on. And you remember uh, the narrative is that God called Abraham out of the Chaldees and made him promises. And he repeated and expanded the promises as the historical narrative continues through the book of Genesis. So, for example, in chapter 12, 13, 15, 18, chapter 22, you find this, that God is making and he's repeating promises, more and more promises. And Abraham is going in the strength of these promises. He's believing them and he is acting And he is moving on the basis, why? Because he really believed God. That was the great characteristic of Abram. Abram believed God, and Romans 4 takes it up in the principle of faith. Abram believed God, and it was counted unto him for righteousness. He believed him. And Hebrews 12, and the role of faithful, Abram's there, and he, he went out not knowing where he was going, and he walked out, stepped out, in faith. Well, what evidence, because remember, faith is evidential, what evidence did Abraham have to move on faith? How can he trust God like that? How can I trust God? How can these people trust God? How can they give God their life? How did they know that God will finish the work that he starts in their life? How does how do these people have real security? In God. Well, he's going to tell them and use Abram as an example. And notice he will say this in verse 14. There's his promise saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. So there's Abram's life. And so Abram's life is God made promises. He patiently endured. And by the way, it wasn't always easy. But he patiently endured and God blessed him. God kept his promise. That's what he says in verse 15. He obtained the promise. And then you come to verse number 16. And here is the character of God which was invested in that promise. Is the great evidence, is the great cause of of, of Abraham's faith, if you like. God based it all in his own character. And he cites that. 
For in verse 16, for men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them who made an end of all strife. So the person of God and his attributes and his nature make it absolutely impossible for him to lie. He cannot lie. And so God's promises are secured in his character. In verse 13, for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself. Now, just to clarify, when it's swearing, it's not what it calls sweary words. He's not um, cursing away with all sorts of words. Um, he's taking an oath. And probably the only context where you'll ever be asked to take an oath is if you have to go and give evidence in a court, you will either be asked to take an oath or you'll be asked to affirm um, and it's up to your conscience which one you do, but that would be probably the, the most, I don't know, up-to-date example of an oath that we would have an involvement with. Well, when God made the promise, he swore by himself. And the reason is, there was no greater person to swear by than himself. So he bases the authenticity and reliability of his word in his own character. Because there is no one more reliable than him. There is no one greater than him. And just imagine Abraham. And there were times it was very difficult. So, you know, take Isaac up the mountain. Okay, you're going to take your son, the son of promise, and you're going to take he who in whom uh, all your life's expectations are Based, and you're going to take him up the mountain and kill him and burn his body and scatter his ashes. Abram, take him up the mountain. And Abram takes him up the mountain. Now we learn from Hebrews that he took him up the mountain because he believed that even if he put the dagger in him, God would raise him from the dead and they would come back down the mountain, which is remarkable considering that I don't think Abraham had any notion that God raised people from the dead. And so he has absolute confidence in the character of God. God will work this out. God will accomplish this because God is true. God cannot lie. God's made promises and these promises are invested in this young boy. And so it doesn't matter what happens up that mountain. God will keep his word no matter what. That was his confidence in the promises of God. And so Titus 1 Verses 1 to 2, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness, here it is, in hope of eternal life, which God, that cannot lie, promised before the world began. God made promises before the world began because God cannot lie. We have confidence in his word. And so God's oath, he made an oath. Verse 16 explains what this is all about because in verse 16 there's a kind of explanatory note here. For, for men verily swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. So if you're in a dispute with someone and it's your word against his, you step up and you say, I'll take an oath. But you're going to actually call upon and you are going to now engage someone who is greater than you. So you are beholden to them and your promise is invested in them. 
And the greater the person, then the greater confirmation. And he actually says, listen, when that happened, that was a done deal. There was no more fighting. That was it. No more strife. So that was the way they did things. Now, when you get to verse 17, God accepts this human pattern. And he doesn't need to make an oath. God's word is good without any oath. Oath. But he's accommodating our weak faith. And he's providing assurance to us. And so in the Old Testament, the the oath commonly was, as the Lord liveth. But actually, for him, it's different. And so instead of, as the Lord liveth, it's, as I live, saith the Lord, in the Old Testament. Again, he's invoking his own character. There's none greater. It's interesting, by the way, when you come to the New Testament, that the idea of oath and pledge also appears when God has given us a pledge of eternal life and a future inheritance, which is the giving of the Holy Spirit, who is the earnest, it's the same word, the earnest of our inheritance, the pledge of our inheritance. And so we are indwelt with the Spirit of God, and that is God's pledge. Now, he says here as well, by the way, this isn't just for people of an Old Testament, because he says in verse number 17, wherein God willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise. Now, that includes us. The immutability of his counsel, he confirmed it by an oath. So God is demonstrating to the heirs of promise the fact that his word is absolutely immutable. It's unchangeable. You can depend on this. Absolutely 100%. Now, why is he going on about this? Because he's saying to these people, go on, go on, don't go back. And what are you going to cling on to? And what's going to be the basis for your faith? As you leave behind Judaism and go on, and all the years of promise that follow you, as they go on to Christ, what's the basis of their faith going to be? It's grounded in the inability of God to lie. The immutability of his word. Faith cometh by hearing and hearing the words of God. And the idea is just this, that God's word is immutable and he has demonstrated it for them and for us and he's even given an oath. So in verse number 18, there are two immutable things in which it's impossible for God to lie in terms of his character and the oath that he has actually said, which relates back to his character. And so he says here that this should give us in verse 18 strong consolation who have fled for refuge to to lay hold upon the hope that set before us his promise, his oath. He stated it. He swore by himself two immutable things in verse 18 which should give them and us strong consolation, strong encouragement Strong confidence. We fled for refuge to Christ. They were leaving Judaism and fleeing to Christ for refuge. And this was the basis of that. The absolute immutability of God's word. They could rest upon it. When all else was pointing in opposite directions. When all else was against them and the pressure was on. They could rest upon this. God's word stood fast. You say, okay, 
What about God's word? What um, was he talking about? Well, he gets specific. You see, we have fled for refuge in verse 18. Here it is, to lay hold upon the hope set before us. So our connection, our relationship with this hope is fully based on the immutability of God's word. But what's the hope? What's the hope? And so he will tell us. This is the hope that we have as an anchor of the soul. This is stability. This is assurance. This is confidence. When you go into other scriptures, for example, 1 Timothy, um, Paul, as he introduces that epistle, says this, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God, our Saviour and Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. He is our hope. In Colossians 1, in verse 5 to 6, he speaks about the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye have heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you since the day ye heard it, and knew the grace of God in truth. Can I suggest when you bring these two texts together, and this text, you find this that Christ himself is our hope. And the blessings that flow in the gospel from Christ and his finished work and sacrificial work is also all part of our hope. Which hope we have as an anchor for the soul? Christ is the anchor of our soul. The gospel is the anchor of our soul. But he says this, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, so it is not going to shift. And which entereth into that within the veil. Now remember, since you hear the word veil for some of the Jewish background, they know exactly what you're talking about. They're talking about that which didn't exist anymore. Remember the veil was torn in two from the top to the bottom. And in this epistle, he's going to expound the truth of Christ within the veil. And he's going to call and, and he's going to depend upon their understanding and knowledge of the Day of Atonement and the whole concept of sacrifice and blood being taken in and then the, the high priest used to go in and out on that Day of Atonement. And the fact that he came out was evidence that the sacrifice had been accepted. He doesn't come out, they're doomed, so to speak, because he who represented the nation in relation to the iniquities of all year hasn't come out. He hasn't had his sacrifice accepted. Remember this, when you come to the Old Testament, it's a wee divergence, when you come to the Old Testament, you think perhaps when you come to the offerings, which speak to the prescribed offerings of your average Israelite in relation to their conduct. Sin offering, trespass offering, peace offering, meal offering. So you can write down them all. You discover this, that none of these offerings were anything to do with intentional sin. None of them. It was all sins of ignorance. Not known, not intended. 
So the majority of the sins of the people weren't dealt with by them bringing sin offering or trespass offering. Actually, what took place annually was that the high priest represented the whole nation symbolically. That's why the Day of Atonement is such a big deal. And he goes with that heavy weight upon him as a representative. And that's, by the way, why in this book of Hebrews, the Day of Atonement is spoken of so significantly, referring to the work of Christ. Because Christ's sacrifice is pictured in that Day of Atonement. You remember the high priest putting his head upon the head of the his hand upon the head of the uh, uh, the beast and the goat, and you remember that there was that symbolic transference of guilt and iniquity, and then borne away the sins of the people, of iniquity borne away, and so you have this concept of in the veil. But the difference is that Christ has entered within the veil, but he hasn't come back out. He's actually sat down. In the holiest of all. No priest ever sat. The work was never done. No high priest lingered in the holiest of all. Because he first had to make atonement for his own sins. He was a sinful man and he was in there. But he had to get back out of there. He couldn't linger in there. That was a dangerous place for a human being to be. Christ is that perfect man. With his own blood. Enters through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, right into the holiest of all. And there he sits down at the right hand of the Majesty in high. A finished sacrifice, an accepted sacrifice. And he ministers to us in the direct, immediate presence of Almighty God. The forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus. Notice the name, maiden high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. There's a man in the glory, our great high priest, who is our hope. His sacrificial death, all wrapped up in that. The one who bears the wounds of his suffering, he is our hope. This is the anchor of the soul. God's immutable word relating to Christ and the gospel. Keep on going. Don't go back. Keep going. And you will find stability and safety and security in this. And when you doubt it, just remember this. He's in the glory. And he's never going to shift in that sense. He doesn't have to come out. And so you have his appearings and so on. We'll come to that. So when you come to this little section... Here is the warning, here is the encouragement, here is the exhortation. If you see evidence in your own life of things that accompany salvation, you praise and rejoice. And don't be complacent. Um, You make sure that you fix your mind upon the name of God and not upon the beneficiaries of your service rendered to him. You make sure that you go on and don't go back. You make sure that you go on with the absolute certainty of the immutability of God and his word and make sure you fix your mind upon the hope which is an anchor for the soul, sure and steadfast. This is why later on he'll say, looking off unto Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. And so our eyes are on him, our heart fixed upon the immutability of the character of God. Let's just pray and give thanks.